Well, we are likely just a couple of weeks from being able to meet again in person as a church. And as you reflect over the past couple of months, I want you to take a second and think about the past couple of months. And I wonder if you've had any significant encounters with God. I mean, I know I have. Uh, many of you remember uh, when this whole lockdown began, I, I felt a, a whole lot of stress. It was a really stressful time to take every part of the church we had built and move it online um, in such a short period of time. And so in the beginning, my blood pressure was out of control. And, you know, certainly I could eat better and exercise more. I mean, everybody can. But this really was an indicator that something deeper was amiss in my life with God. As I began to process why I found myself so stressed out, I did what I've done so many times before in this church. I made a list of everything I was responsible for. As I made this list, I became aware of a few things. First of all, a pastor has a lot of responsibility. I mean, that's not shocking, um, or at least it shouldn't be. But I also became aware that, <coughs> excuse me, in my role as a pastor, I tend to take on more responsibility than is actually mine to take. As I made this list, I, I realized that I tend to take responsibility for things that so many other people could do much better than I could. I realized that I also tend to create structures uh, that are really unnecessary. Uh, and that tends to force me to, to be responsible for them. And, and so I guess maybe I'd make a, an excellent bureaucrat. I create structures and paperwork that are unnecessary. Uh, <laughs> but when I made my list, I went to God with the whole list and everything that I put on it. And gently, God began to deal with my list. He showed me places where I had not been grounded in my identity as his child. He showed me places where I was trying to earn my value in the things I was doing. It wasn't the things that I uh, was doing were bad things. It was that my reason for doing them was hoping that I would gain value and acceptance. I was doing lots of things, quite simply, that God had not asked me to do. As I surrendered control of the things that I, uh, that I do uh, over to God, as I turn that over, one thing really became clear. God really hasn't asked me to do all that much. But in my unhealed brokenness, I'm driven to do a whole bunch of things. And I tend to overfunction. But as God gives me grace, I'm pursuing transformation to become a different kind of person, the kind of person God designed me to be. A, a few weeks ago, we began this series called Different. And what I told you is that spiritual health and emotional health are deeply intertwined. Pete Scazzaro, some of you will know, uh, a pastor in New York, he says that you can't be spiritually healthy if you're emotionally unhealthy. And generally, the church does a pretty good job of 
tending to spiritual matters, but when it comes to emotional health, we tend to lag really far behind. So this series, we're, we're aiming at looking at how we can become more emotionally healthy in order to become more spiritually healthy. And as we begin uh, with emotional health, the first few weeks of the series we're taking to identify the places where we uh, experience anxiety. Really, we're doing this so that we can submit those places to God so that he can transform them and heal them so that we can become the kinds of people God intends us to be. The good news is that humans respond to anxiety and predictable patterns that we can observe. <coughs> so if we can become aware of the places where we exhibit these patterns, we really can begin to see our own anxiety. And more importantly, what triggers our anxiety? The predictable ways humans respond to anxiety are triangling, conflict, distance, overfunctioning, underfunctioning. Now, last week I talked about conflict and distance, and I, I hope you were able to see uh, the places in your life where conflict and distance show up. And if you tried to be aware this week of, of where you fall into these patterns, what you may have begun to notice is there are certain instances or issues or relationships that tend to trigger you. And these really are indications of areas of anxiety for you. And as you become aware of them, a healthy response is to take your awareness into a space of quiet with the Lord and ask why this causes you anxiety. That's how you deal with these things. So this week, we're going to look at overfunctioning and underfunctioning. And before we begin, let me define these words for you so that we're all on the same page. An overfunctioner is someone who takes responsibility for things that are not theirs to be responsible for. This is what I tend to do, at least with respect to the church. In the face of anxiety, an overfunctioner calms their anxiety by doing everyone else's tasks for them. And the reason that they do that is to feel better, that the anxiety comes and, and, and we just grab control. Now here's the bad news. If you're an overfunctioner, we live in a society that applauds overfunctioners. You know, we give these people trophies, awards, promotions, accolades, money. In our society, almost nobody will tell you that something's wrong when you overfunction. They just are happy that you're doing more. As you might guess, an underfunctioner then is someone who doesn't take responsibility for things that they are responsible for. And anxiety, <clears throat> an underfunctioner calms their anxiety by unloading responsibility. Often, the way you can identify uh, an underfunctioner is, is when anxiety gets really high, underfunctioners just don't make decisions. It's just sort of expect somebody else to step in and make the decision for them. Now, remember, these are just warning signs. These are the lights on the dashboard that point to an indication or a pro of a problem. It's an indication you're experiencing anxiety. And in the face of that anxiety, you either take control if you're an overfunctioner and assume responsibility for other people's tasks, or if you're an underfunctioner, you step out of your responsibilities. 
And here's a critical piece of the puzzle. These things happen together. You can't have one without the other. You can't have an underfunctioner unless you have an overfunctioner. Even if your tendency is to underfunction, the only way that really happens is if somebody steps in and overfunctions for you. And so much of the, the time that we're going to spend today talking about this, we're going to really focus on overfunctioning, but just recognize that underfunctioning is also an indicator of anxiety. So what I want to start out with doing is I want to look at the way this functions in a biblical context. If you want you, if you have your Bibles handy, you can turn to Exodus 18. And as you turn there, let me turn there as well. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 18. <clears throat> and let me give you a little bit of context. We went through Lent leading up to Easter. And we looked at the beginning few chapters of Exodus. And so as we fast forward, as we get to chapter 18, the nation of Israel has come out of Egypt. They were pursued by Pharaoh and his army, and they walked through the sea on dry land. You may remember that story where you know the part, God parts the sea and, and uh, Israel walks through on dry land. But then Pharaoh's army goes through, and they get drowned in the sea as it comes back together. Now, by the time we get to chapter 18, Moses' father-in-law has now come to be with him. And so chapter 18, we're going to look at, at verse 13, and that's where we are. Here's what we read. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as a judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to, see, to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me. And I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, what, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but then have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home Satisfied. Moses is a classic overfunctioner. When his father-in-law is asking him, why is he doing this? Verse 15 says, Moses tells him, it's because people come to me to seek God's will. You know, one of the traps for Christian leaders and people who, who lead in any sense in, in Christian circles is this idea that people are coming to you because you are the dispenser of God's wisdom. You see it all over the place. You see it in churches everywhere. There's pastors that do this everywhere. 
And you may not say it explicitly. I don't know of any pastor that says, well, I'm the one that has uh, all of God's wisdom to dispense. But your actions tell it. This is over-functioning. It happens at all levels. I mean, it, it's not just pastors. It happens when you lead someone to Christ and, and they're a new follower of Jesus and they don't know anything. So, of course, I have to tell them all the things. It happens when you lead a team, that you're the one, you're the guru. It happens when you lead a small group. It happens when you pastor people and when you lead a church. And so you begin to be the guru for those people you're leading. <coughs> and here's the thing. They actually tend to be happy to let you do that for them. Most people are not going to fight you whenever you're trying to be that for them. And for you, it really feels good, after all, to be recognized as someone special, doesn't it? Don't we like that? I mean, you like to feel that way. And it all seems fine. But here's the problem. When you over-function for someone, it forces them to be an under-functioner. You can't have one without the other. And so instead of growing up into maturity, effectively what you've done is you stop their growth. Because pastors tend to be over-functioners, what happens in so many churches is that we have people who expect the pastor to be the dispenser of all the religious goods and services. We grow into this unspoken expectation that the pastor will live a deeply vibrant spiritual life with God, and then he or she will dispense to us what we need. And the problem is when this happens, People die spiritually. We see it all over the place. And if I'm honest, I think that's probably part of why we our churches and our cities are not transformed is because we've built this culture where the pastor overfunctions and is our spiritual guru, while the vast majority of those who follow Jesus, who are not pastors, are happy to let them overfunction. Hey, give me an illustration uh, from real world. If, if you help a chicken out of an egg when it hatches, generally speaking, it's going to be detrimental to the chicken in some way. Sometimes when you do that, the chicken just dies. Other times it, when you do that, the chicken is like mouth uh, misformed. It doesn't, it doesn't actually generate the muscles that it needs. Uh, because it's not fighting out of the egg. And so here's what here's the problem, is that there's something in the struggle of getting out of the egg that the chicken needs to survive. There's something about going through the process for itself. The chicken needs to learn to fight for itself and, and, and stand up on its own two legs. The same is true of people. Now, let me say this as sensitively as I know how. And, and please hear my heart. I need you to hear my heart for you as your pastor and know that I say this uh, because I deeply, deeply care for you. I am not responsible for your spiritual health. Neither is Jerry, neither is Tyler, neither is any pastor in the world. Even though it's easy for us to fall into that role, no pastor is responsible for your spiritual health. 
Nobody is responsible uh, for your spiritual health except you. If your spiritual life is dependent upon someone else preaching the right sermon or singing the right songs or having the right prophetic word or praying for you in just the right way or, or maybe going to just the right conference, your spiritual growth is stunted. It's unhealthy for you. It's not that these things can't be health, helpful or life-giving. Pastors are going to preach and teachers are going to teach and people who pray are going to pray. Prophetic words are going to be given. But <clears throat> these things are, are, cannot be the hinge of your spiritual life. It can't be dependent on somebody else doing it just right. You are responsible for your own. You know, and it's not even that these things are bad. We do need like relationship with other followers of Jesus. We do need people to teach us how to follow Jesus, but nobody else can create for you a deeply intimate and vibrant spiritual life with God. Nobody else can do it. You know, when Jesus died, the curtain to the Holy of Holies inside the temple uh, where God's presence dwelt was torn in two. This happened because you have access to an intimate spiritual life and an intimate relationship with God yourself. Not only that, but God pours out the Holy Spirit on all who believe, not just leaders, which means that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Spirit of God living inside you, teaching you, directing you, guiding you. And here's the thing, because of that, you have access to God at all times and in all places, not just when you're at church or not just when you're among other Christians. You have access to God at work, at home, in all these places. <clears throat> you are responsible for your own spiritual life. Now, I want to take a second and just talk to leaders. So if you lead people in Christian circles or in the church, in, in any way, I want you to hear this. Those Christians you lead have the Holy Spirit living inside them. And even though you may be a great teacher, right? We all, come on, we all think we're, we're pretty good. Even though you may think you're a great teacher, that you have so much wisdom to share, the Holy Spirit will do a better job than you every time. I guarantee it. The question really is, do we trust the Holy Spirit inside of the people we lead? Do we trust that? That's a real good question. Here's the thing. The people that you lead, even the brand new Christians, don't get like a minor Holy Spirit. It's not like you get like the, the, the little dose first, and then later on you get the real thing. It's, it's the same Holy Spirit given to everyone. And so perhaps instead of owning the responsibility to make sure everyone gets your teaching, a better way to lead would be to help them hear and discern the voice of God for themselves. And then your role is to be an encourager to encourage them to do that. I'm not saying this as someone who's got it all figured out uh, and is standing on a pedestal wagging uh, finger. I'm still figuring out how not to overfunction for other people. All I'm saying to you is that as you and I co-labor, 
in leading God's people, let's not stunt people's growth by trying to be the Holy Spirit for them. Okay? This over-functioning dynamic doesn't only happen in Christian leadership and in the church. It happens in families, too. And often it shows up as one family member who's responsible for way more household duties than the other. Probably a couple smirks there, right? Uh, don't point at, at the person you're sitting next to. Uh, <laughs> any of you, uh, anyone else resonate with this? Like this is a lot of homes, right? The classic example is, uh, of course, there's the wife who cleans and cooks and does laundry and makes sure the kids get what they need while the husband just does all the things that he wants to do. I mean, it could be the opposite. It could be the husband that does all the work. Uh, but the key indicator here is that one person is taking responsibility for things that should be shared. Another place this happens is in a workplace, and, and many of you probably can relate. A great example is the boss who micromanages everyone because nobody could possibly do it as well as he could do it. And so everyone else around him, because he overfunctions, Everyone else around him is forced to underfunction. Now, here's how you can tell this is happening. All the really talented people, all the really good people, they just leave. They, they decide to go someplace else where they can work and exercise their, their gifts and their abilities. And everyone else who, who stays takes on this maybe unspoken understanding that they have to resign themselves to functioning well below their ability. And, and really, the results of the team are, are usually pretty pathetic. They don't really perform well at all. Now, you may have been in a, a work dynamic like this. Maybe you are now. Or maybe you're the boss that's doing this. And, and there's no shame in this right now. We're not trying to shame you. What I'm saying is this is what happens when over-functioners are anxious. And so if you are the boss, the awareness is, the, is a great first step to being able to change things, being aware that that's what you do. The over-functioning, over under-functioning dynamic, it can happen in any relationship. Moses was over-functioning for the Israelites, and his father-in-law sees the problem. If he continues at this pace, he's going to burn himself out. And this is what happens to over-functioners. If you tend to over-function, chances are really good that you spend a lot of your time on the edge of burnout, you're probably very uh, brittle, right? And, and you, you, you're, you're constantly uh, on the edge uh, of just uh, not having anything left to offer. And here's why you do that. It's because you're, not, you, because you're constantly carrying the weight of not only your own responsibility, but the responsibilities of all those around you. Eventually, you resent people, and maybe you already resent the people you overfunction for. And secretly, or maybe not so secretly, you blame them for not doing the things that you think they should do, or not doing them well enough. But here's where you get to notice something, if you want to. When you're feeling exhausted, when your fuse is short, when you're feeling resentful, stop for a second. Ask yourself, why do I feel this way? And what you're probably going to discover is that there's a source here of anxiety for you. Overfunctioning is a warning sign. It's the light on the dashboard. 
that we're experiencing anxiety about something. We're trying to take on responsibility for everyone else's things in order to calm that anxiety. Pay attention to why. Why do you feel like you have to be responsible for everyone else's stuff? It's probably because there are places in your life that you need God to intervene. Now, Moses was overfunctioning for the Israelites. And, and here's another thing that happens when you overfunction. What was happening there is he was robbing them of the ability that God had given them, each one, to serve each other as judges and leaders. If you overfunction for other people, what you do is you take away their God given dignity to be their own fully functioning selves. And really, Overfunctioning has a lot less to do with everyone else and a lot more to do with how you handle your own anxiety. So as you identify this, one of the things you may be thinking is, okay, well, how do I get out of the cycle? I mean, <laughs> I've been naturally doing this my whole life. How do I do, how do I do something else? The first step out is that you need a space with God where the anxiety that causes you to overfunction or even underfunction can be dealt with by God. <clears throat> Whatever validation that you're lacking, which tends to be one of the things that causes us uh, to, to move into overfunctioning, is that we're seeking validation. Whatever validation you're lacking, or, or maybe it's fear that drives you there, whatever fear you're experiencing, you need to hand that to God and let him deal with it. Otherwise, you're going to show up every time and do the same thing. This is what you do. This is what people do, right? All of these things, this is what people do when people do what people do. This is how we respond to anxiety. These are the patterns. And so this is why it's so critical to have a daily time of silence and solitude. It's, that's the place where you present those fears, those needs for validation, those sources of anxiety to God and allow him to write a new story, to write a new narrative, to heal those places. The other thing that you can do and you should do, I mean, everybody should have a weekly Sabbath, but especially if you tend to overfunction, a weekly Sabbath is a resistance to this need that you have to make everything okay. Because once a week, we take a 24-hour period and we say, God, you run the world without me now. It's a resistance against this need to make everything happen. And after we've done this, once we've been in a place where God has dealt with those things, then we can show up differently in situations. Then, after God shapes our inclinations, when we find ourselves tempted to overfunction, you just don't. You have to think about it. You have to be in a place and you recognize it. But as you recognize your need to reach out and grab control, you just don't. And here's the problem. It actually is counterintuitive. It actually increases the anxiety for you. Because the way you normally relieve your anxiety is by doing things for people. <laughs> it also increases the anxiety in everybody else. Because... If you've been overfunctioning for a while, everyone else has learned to underfunction because they can lean on your overfunctioning. 
So when you choose not to, that's going to upset some people. That's the, because you're disrupting the system. If that's the way that you've done things for a long time, it, it's a shakeup to the system and it inherently resists the change that you're trying to bring to it. But you have to go through this process if you're ever going to see healing. And here's the thing. Likely when you do this, things are going to go wrong. Things are going to get forgotten. In fact, the things that you feared that tend to make you overfunction actually probably will happen. People won't do things as well as you do. People will forget things. The ball will get dropped. But it's not because you are right to overfunction. It may feel like it's confirming the thing that you, you know, that, oh, yeah, this is why I have to do it. I always have to do it. It's not because you were right to overfunction. It's because people need to relearn how to function appropriately. Everybody then upholds their own level of functioning. But if they've learned that you'll do it for them, they have to learn again how to come back into right function because this is how you work with each other. So let me give you an example as I kind of bring this to a close from my own family. Uh, you know, for years, uh, Jerry has, has done a lot of the home uh, tasks. And as I've begun to try to, um, to step in and, and share some of the things like laundry and, and, and things like that, uh, what, what has happened is that I don't do them as well as she does. And so as we've begun to, to share the responsibility, we'll just use laundry, uh, it's an adjustment. And here's the thing. She used to do it all the time, and now I'm doing it. And as I do it, I make mistakes. <laughs> the laundry piles up sometimes because I don't have a system yet in place. Or sometimes what happens is we get partway through the laundry and I get distracted doing something else and two days go by and I realize that I didn't switch the laundry and there's stuff in the washer, which is kind of nasty, but uh, you wash it again. Or, or, or maybe it just piles up. This is another thing, right? It piles up in front of the dryer. But for her, the, the step is to not step in and overfunction and just do it because I'm not doing it well. That's her inclination is to just, just do it. But the way forward, the way to wholeness and the way to healing is to manage anxiety and endure the process. As we do this, we're going to have to increase our ability to, to endure pain. I mean, because it's going to be painful to deal with the anxiety that comes when things don't work out the way that they're supposed to. Listen, we were made to be different people. We were made to be the kind of people who can be present in situations that are anxious and yet calm enough to bring thoughtful response. I mean, isn't that what you see when, when you look at Jesus? You read through scripture, right? And everywhere that Jesus goes, there's people that are freaking out all the time. Over and over and over and over and over again. People just freaking out. And yet Jesus, in all of these situations, he responds thoughtfully. He doesn't give in to the anxiety of the situation. He shows up as a calm presence. And I think that's what we're supposed to be. 
I think as we show up into the world, the way we live as different kinds of people is where everyone else is freaking out. We are calm and we're a presence that, that removes anxiety or that, that, that uh, lessens anxiety in situations. This is the kind of people we're supposed to be. Here's the thing, though. Modern day psychology, even though they know all of this stuff, they really don't have a solution for you. Right. Here's what modern day psychology tells you whenever you experience anxiety. And even as you become aware of the anxiety that you experience, here's what they tell you. Try harder not to be anxious. Just try harder. Just don't. Just don't go into situations that are anxious. Don't go into places where you get upset. Try harder. This is the psychology response. But here's the thing. As a follower of Jesus, we follow Jesus. We follow and we believe in a God who transforms people, who changes people. And so the God we serve will change us to be different kinds of people if we'll allow him. That we're supposed to be able to become people who can be present in anxious situations without giving in to the anxiety that's present. This is a kingdom thing that we're talking about. And so we've spent the past few weeks talking about how we can be aware of places we're anxious. Next week, we're going to talk about what do we do now to become transformed people? How do we begin to process through the anxiety that we feel so that we can show up differently?